Hello everyone. I'm going to start my first fireside chat. Um, basically, I'm going to be answering your questions. It's interesting that uh, when I think about what it is that I wanted to share, I decided to come in with absolutely no idea uh, because I really just want to connect with you guys and answer questions. Um, people have sent a whole four pages of questions and I'll, I'll read them and answer them. Um, but uh, hi, Carol, uh, thank you for your happy birthday wishes. Um, I'm, I'm uh, very interested in what kind of questions you have and they can be technical questions about anything that I've been working on. I don't generally take positions on other movements and things that are outside our area. It doesn't help us to give um, Monsanto ways to try and create divisiveness. So we don't take positions on vaccines and we don't take positions on so many other things, politics. Um, we take positions on on particular political uh, bills, etc., and as you all know, I've worked to try and get GMOs labeled in the United States and a lot more. Um, okay, so I'm going to start answering questions. Hi, Danny. Um, first of all, let's. Uh, I'm just going to go in the order of some of these that were sent to us. Um, Rita asks, I saw an article in Bloomberg today, their halt, bear is halting release on Roundup, US Supreme Court looking into the matter. Actually, Rita, it's not. <laughs> Unfortunately, bear is not halting the release on Roundup. They're halting the, the discussions about their settlement with the plaintiffs who suffered from non-Hodgkin lymphoma after using Roundup because the Supreme Court ask the Department of Justice to comment on Monsanto's excuse for bringing the case before them. Monsanto basically says, if the, F, if the EPA approved it, then the California laws related to um, disclosure and, and toxic products don't apply because it's preempted. So because they're saying because the EPA approved it, they shouldn't have to pay anything to anyone ultimately. And so the Supreme Court asked the Department of Justice to respond to Monsanto's claim. This is, this is dangerous. This could reverse that um, $15 billion proposed uh, settlement. So I've been, I'll watch that and I'll watch it closely and let you all know what happens. Um, hello, Liana and Max. Uh, thank you for wishing me happy birthday. Um, so here's another question. Um, and it's about what I will speak on and what I won't. This is so interesting. John Diaz says, uh, lots happened since we met and walked together in the 2011 Right to Know Brooklyn to White House March. I remember John, I remember you, John. He said, as you know, Ronnie Cummins emailed his list in 2015 advocating open border, no wall, no US movement. Do you agree? We don't take a position in that. It's like, 
you don't need my personal opinion on stuff that I haven't studied in depth. And I certainly don't want to take, it's like one, one of the strategies that we've had is to keep the bar as low as possible so people can be anti-GMO, whether they're Republican or Democrat, vegan or carnivore, um, pro this or anti this. So it's a strategic position where we just focus on that one thing. I've got some, I've got some intense science questions coming up. Let's see. Josh, what do you think of the new deregulation of stacked traits and plants? Did you know that this will be the main component for Joe Biden's climate change agenda? Well, the biotech industry tries to jump on every need of the day, the need du jour, climate change in the one hand, um, feeding the world, and claiming that their technology is going to do it. Um, the deregulation that I know about in terms of stack traits is that if the individual traits are approved, there's no need to evaluate the traits, in other words, several genes in one ear of corn. There's corn with eight genes in it, um, genes for uh, Roundup Ready, um, probably for another herbicide, and then different types of BT toxin genes. Um, very, very, uh, you know, inexperienced chemistry students in undergraduate learn about synergistic effects of chemicals. And the fact that they are saying, because these in individually were approved, we can put them all together in a crop is entirely unscientific. This is the EPA's um, uh, or FDA's dream that this has no, no impact. And they know, I mean, they're not actually aligned with science. I mean, the way that the EPA evaluates Roundup, first of all, they don't do any studies. They allow Monsanto to do the studies. And Monsanto, they're saying, just send us data on the active ingredient. And you get to determine what the active ingredient or ingredients are. So Monsanto says, oh, we only have one active ingredient in Roundup, glyphosate. Well, that's not true. There's something in Roundup that's 10,000 times more toxic than glyphosate. There's other um, uh, hormone disruptions, hormone disruptors and toxic toxins that are very, very dangerous. And when you put them all together, Roundup can be 125 times more toxic than glyphosate alone. But um, the, F the EPA says, you just send us whatever data you want or whatever data fits these needs. And it's often rigged research, as you know, from Monsanto. We've, we've exposed that over and over again. And, and Monsanto doesn't even choose to test glyphosate salts, which is more toxic than technical glyphosate. But the glyphosate salts are the ones used in the herbicide. They use the less toxic version, the technical glyphosate, and still end up causing damage to their animals and claim that nothing's happening. So, um, it's a mess in the regulatory world, and we'll answer some of the more questions, and you'll see that they're really making GMOs an existential threat. Dr. Michael Joseph, PhD, asks the question, I'd like to explore in more depth the relationship between mold and fungus and glyphosate. Seems to be an important topic few people are talking about. This is a very interesting topic, Michael, actually. Um, Glyphosate, 
The way Roundup works in the soil is fascinating, and it helps understand why it's so dangerous to humans. Glyphosate um, blocks the ability of the plant to access certain minerals. Um, the mineral the minerals in the plant become very very meager, um, and it blocks the production or the action of a shikimate pathway. Um, between these two, the plant becomes stunted. If you just put pure glyphosate on a plant, um, it'll stunt it if you do it in, in sterile soil. If you do it in field soil, you'll kill it. What it does is it, it, makes, the, it makes certain biochemical pathways in the plant absolutely unusable. So it can't defend itself against disease. And then it increases the fungal disease, the soil-based pathogens that kill the plant. So the glyphosate actually promotes the growth of fungus. Now think about the human body too. It kills the beneficial bacteria. The beneficial bacteria in the soil keep the pathogen level low. So you kill those, increase the, increase the fungal pathogens, and the plants die. So in our bodies, it kills the beneficial bacteria. It may promote the growth of fungi, fungal toxins and other pathogens. And uh, it's absolutely like it just creates a horrible mess. So let's come back to the live messaging. Alana, Ruthann, Joyce, thank you very much for your birthday wishes. Um, okay. Um, next question. Oh, and a friend of mine, um, took the air quality of a soy field and a corn field and sent it to a lab and they didn't, he didn't say what it was from. And they said, this is very toxic. If whatever environment you got it from, don't spend a lot of time in there. There's likely a lot of airborne fungal based pathogens in fields, probably in the whole Midwest where, and other places where Roundup is, is sold. And there's also a promotion, uh, Mark says, so that our food is full of mycotoxins. Yes, that is very likely that, and there is some research that shows that there's an increase in certain fungus in corn. I remember in my first film, um, Hidden Dangers in Kids Meals, I interviewed Jerry Roseman, who um, he was feeding genetically engineered corn to his cows and pigs, and they couldn't get pregnant. Um, and he found, he did a study on the corn and found it had very, very high levels of, of uh, a certain type of mold. Um, and so we think that might be the reason. Although there could also be, they were creating some pharmaceutical corn that was a sterilizing agent and that might have cross-contaminated. But there was a lot of, a lot of evidence suggesting that GMOs were causing infertility in and animals. Uh, in my third film, Genetic Roulette, I interviewed Don Huber, who talked about this organism that they haven't been able to identify. It's likely at this point, the update is it's probably a prion-like protein that can replicate and that um, he was able to verify through something called Koch's postulates that it does in fact cause infertility uh, and it is increased in areas where they spray Roundup. So, that's examples of where future generations are at risk. 
but there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. They've injected Roundup into pregnant mice. I interviewed Dr. Skinner on the Facebook page a um, year and a half ago or two years ago. He injected um, Roundup into the pregnant mice and their great-grandchildren suffered more than the grandchildren, which suffered more than the children. So there was an epigenetic effect that was passed on to future generations. Um, thank you, Jane, for my birthday gift and also Charlie. Um, Charlie's asking, do they really spray Roundup on wheat right before harvesting? Not all wheat, Charlie, but a significant amount. There, we don't have exact numbers. It's, um, there's a higher percentage depending on which type of wheat and where it is. So one of the reasons they spray wheat on, I mean, they spray wheat with Roundup is to fast, to speed up the ripening. So um, it's like, we're going to die, give all the energy to the kids. And so all the energy of the, of the plant, because the plant is dying, it's drying down and dying, is going, goes to the ripening of the seeds, which is the grain. So, it's, so in, in the northern climates, when they have a short growing season, they may want to speed up the ripening so that when they harvest, it'll be uniform and everything will be ripe. And it also dries down the crop. So the, depending on the way you store it, it can reduce the mold. It also kills all the weeds for next year. So as, from a farmer's standpoint, it's a tool that helps their um, mechanics. From a human standpoint, it's a disaster because wheat and oats and barley and mung beans and chickpeas and all these things have uh, glyphosate in them in high levels because it's done as a desiccant to dry down the crop just before harvest. Um, yeah, Joyce, pharmaceutical corn, an interesting title. Yeah, Joyce, um, they, they take crops and they in, insert genes to produce particular pharmaceuticals. So in a Western Iowa, they had a field where they engineered corn to produce a vaccine for pig diarrhea. And then the, there was specific guidelines for the farmer to make sure it didn't contaminate. I mean, we, in a previous interview 20 years ago, I interviewed Neil Carmen, who's an expert in air pollution out of Texas. Hi, Neil, if you're out there. And he showed, he talk, described it in Texas that the something the size of a pollen grain of corn in certain weather conditions can travel 500 miles. Now, in, in 24 hours, corn pollen is usually viable only one or two hours, but sometimes it's viable for 24 hours. So imagine planting outdoors corn whose pollen can then cross-pollinate with other corn a thousand mile diameter. It's absolutely crazy. Someone from an the USDA inspector was driving past the field the next season. Um, it, they had planted soy. They had harvested the soy and he noticed that there were still some corn plants from the previous season that had were sticking up. And he realized that that when they harvest the soy, they probably picked up some of that pharmaceutical corn. So they traced it to a silo with an enormous amount of soy and had to destroy the entire silo just so that pharmaceutical corn couldn't get out. Now, creating 
pharmaceuticals inside edible food is crazy. Let me tell you two current things. Uh, gene editing is entirely deregulated in Japan so that a company produced tomatoes that produce GABA, which is a substance that can help sedate and calm. And they're giving away seeds to gardeners and they want to use it for children's school. So they want to use, they want to create essentially a kind of a pharmaceutical drug inside the tomato. And there's no way to, they don't have any regulations on it. I remember um, Dr. Schubert, uh, who was in my third film, Genetic Rhythm, I think, he, David Schubert, he talks about the golden rice that because you're genetically engineered to produce an active, uh, in this case, vitamin A or beta carotene, that's way more dangerous than trying to, in, you know, make something Roundup ready because you're affecting a biochemical pathway with chemicals that are bioactive, that are known to be bioactive. And he showed the biochemical pathway that produces the, the beta carotene. It can possibly influence the retinoic acid pathway, which can create birth defects. So here there's GABA being produced in a tomato and no one's doing the drill down to see if there's even potential problems that haven't been checked because they never really, they don't do any safety studies. And the grant of $500,000, I think, was just given to UC Riverside, I think, to create lettuce that carries a COVID vaccine. No, I'm not making this up. Lettuce that can carry a COVID vaccine. So, so you want to inoculate children? No shot, just have some lettuce. Now, what are the chances of that lettuce being eaten accidentally in large quantities by a human or a rabbit or a guinea pig? Um, that it be lost somewhere and be sold eventually or uses its seeds as non-GMO, safe, edible lettuce. Um, tomato seeds were act, that were genetically engineered were accidentally being given out by university for, for months, thinking it was natural to other research institutes until someone accidentally or happenstance did a PCR test and found, you just sent me GMOs. They had to tell all these people, oops. Even the CDC's lab accidentally sent out active anthrax and a gain-of-function lab to, and endangering 75 scientists um, because of human error. So the idea that they can get away with genetically engineering the COVID vaccine into lettuce is a disaster, and we're going to try and do something on that. Let's see who else we have. Um, yeah, Leanna, yeah, they do that with oats. You've experienced it with your animals and fertility. Yeah. So, Leanna, I've, I've, even cats and dogs um, show infertility issues that change when they switch to a non-GMO organic diet. <coughs> Can you discuss Bill Gates becoming the largest farm owner in the U.S. and where is that going? He's into so many different things. Um, I don't know. I don't know what his plans are there. Um, he is the biggest philanthropic supporter of GMOs. 
And I've heard from many, many sources that when they look at the portfolio, it isn't all philanthropy. It's a kind of a self-serving thing where he can support some of his businesses through his philanthropy. So I don't really know. I don't, I, I remember being four rows back uh, when he was speaking at the World Food Prize, hoping that, and videotaping his whole, I have the videotape somewhere. And he was approached by the Rockefeller Foundation that talked about GMOs. Well, Rockefeller Foundation is a pro-GMO machine. Um, they work with Monsanto, et cetera. So he was convinced by the Rockefeller Foundation is what he said, the GMOs were great. And I think he's been insulated ever since. Uh, my friend Steve Drucker has a great chapter in his wonderful, magnificent book called Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, uh, comparing how they test for computer bugs and how they how careful they are in computer science compared to how ridiculously uncareful they are in in uh, biotech. And I would like I would like um, Bill Gates to to read that. And I, I was thinking about doing an open letter to him a long time ago. Um, so jo Josh, you're giving me something to read and comment. I'm not going to have a chance to read it. Um, Joyce, why can't we get past GMOs? People are more aware and are eating organic. How do Monsanto Bear and other agrochemical companies hang on so tenaciously even with all the major high payout lawsuits. You see, there's a shift going on uh, to a new generation of GMOs. And years ago they met, I think it was in Bulgaria, and the number one goal of the meeting was to come up with a master plan to convince governments that gene editing and the new techniques for genetic engineering were not GMOs at all. And they've implemented that. That's how Japan is allowing this GABA-producing um, gene-edited tomato in the market without any regulation. The U.S., that same thing with gene-edited mushrooms. There's no, regula there's no regulatory oversight. There's no reg regulatory oversight for a certain class of gene-edited um, plants, animals, and microbes in Australia. I think animals are now deregulated in, in the U.K., at least that was the proposal. Um, they're trying to force that in Canada and the EU. It's a full court press. It's, the, it's one of the most serious events of our time that can determine whether we survive as a planet. Because gene editing is so cheap and easy, you can buy a do-it-yourself kit on Amazon for under $200. And for under $2,000, you can create a lab where you can genetically engineer microbes and all sorts of combinations. And when you imagine that there could be millions and millions of GMO organisms released in our future, we're replacing nature. And the most common result of genetic engineering is surprise side effects. And among the kingdoms that are genetically engineered, the most dangerous is the microbial. So that's why we're doing a Protect Nature Now campaign. You can look at it at protectnaturenow.com. I recommend watching the 60-minute film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to answer some questions that came in. Um, this was from Dennis, because um, it's related to what I'm just talking. He asks a lot of questions, and so I'll respond in the context of what I just said. 
are there accepted or theoretical models of the evolution of the human in general gene, gene pool? How resilient is it? Can its evolution be destabilized by human tinkering? Can we track an arbitrary artificial modification of genes? Can modified genes become uncontrollably invasive like invasive plants? So very good question. Let's just take the example of genetically engineered microbes. You, you genetically engineer a microbe, you'll see in the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, that one could have theoretically ended terrestrial plant life if it, had, if it had been released. One could have changed weather patterns theoretically if it had been released. So it can cause massive catastrophes and cataclysms. But you release something well-meaning with a gene change and it can mutate. And even if it does what it's supposed to do, it can do things in ecosystems in ways that were never predicted because we don't understand how the microbiome really works. It's just awe-inspiring. But microbes also swap genes. So can genes become uncontrollably evasive? You insert a gene or change a genetic structure in one bacteria, bacterium, and it can end up transferring to many different species, maybe to other kingdoms or classes. And so now you've created a situation where one genetically engineered microbe was released as a colony, and now there's a it affects a thousand different types of microbes in ten thousand different ecosystems, including the human ecosystem. So, and it can persist for as long as microbes exist. It's irreversible. So all those questions, Dennis, yeah especially in GM microbes, but in general, genes can transfer through horizontal gene transfer. For, they can go from plants to fungus at the cut points of, of plants. We've known these things for a long time. And Dennis asks, can our own genes be modified by ingesting or otherwise assimilating modified plant or animal genetic material? Um, we know that our gut bacteria can be modified because when they tested um, gut bacteria inside um, some subjects that had elostomy bags um, were a bag coming out of their um, its lower intestines. They looked at the at the microbes, and sure enough, some of the some of the in, the inserted gene that was inserted into soy ended up in, inserted into the DNA of bacteria living inside their intestines. And I've mentioned this um, in genetic roulette, where if the BT toxin gene that produces the insecticide in corn were to transfer to gut bacteria and continue to function, it might be creating um, living pesticide factory inside us, producing BT toxin inside our guts on a regular basis that pokes holes in human cells. It also evokes immune responses, and it might explain why 93% of the pregnant women tested in Canada had BT toxin in their genes because they may have been producing it inside their guts. So very dangerous. Um, but in there's another technology called double-stranded RNA, where, sorry, I have a, an allergy here. Um, the double-stranded RNA acts as a regulator of DNA expression. So there's little like 22 base, 22 nucleotide long RNAs. They form a little, like a they, they fold onto each other, it's double-stranded, and it's kind of like a hunt-and-destroy operation. It'll find um, pieces of DNA that match its um, code, and it'll end up silencing 
that part of the DNA. Now, it operates between species. So um, you can they fed a double-stranded RNA to honeybees and found that over 1,400 of their genes changed expression over the next few weeks. Um, you can change the gen expression of human DNA with double-stranded RNA. So why are they putting double-stranded RNA in apples and potatoes? So yes, Dennis, it is possible that eating a genetically engineered apple, so if you buy pre-sliced apples in Amazon, it's probably the GMO Arctic apple that is engineered not to turn brown when sliced. Or many of the potatoes being sold in the United States are designed to not turn brown when sliced or bruised. You may be reprogramming your DNA. That little piece of RNA may match up with something in your DNA and silence it. And the chances of it finding something that's identical or close enough is about 100% because it's just 22 base pairs or 22 nucleotides. And we've got, you know, massive, massive amounts of base pairs to uh, attach it to. So it's going to find many areas, but we don't know if it's going to work on us because no one's done the research. They just put this stuff on the market. I did interview, I think it was Jonathan Landsman, um, who used to work at the USDA, who was who wrote an article and published it and was really irked the people at the USDA saying, we have no way to evaluate this stuff because um, animals that eat the crops that are, have double-stranded RNA, they might be affected. And he created this whole elaborate way of analysis to look at the, the animals that would be most likely affected by eating the DNA, the double-stranded RNA in the corn crop, for example. And he, I interviewed him in Mexico. Uh, we were at a um, convention on biological diversity. And I said, what about humans eating it? He said, yeah, that could have an effect there too. He was forced out of the USDA. Um, there were also people in the EPA that wrote something about RNA spray, RNAi, it's called RNA interference sprays, where you spray crops with double-stranded RNA, which if it happens to land on humans or animals, could silence genes at random. So if you go to responsibletechnology.org and you just enter DSRNA or double-stranded RNA, you'll see a, a short film we did. I used uh, clips from Jack Heinemann, and I saw him in China. There was 40 of us, the most power-packed group of anti-GMO, non-GMO scientists, activists, farmers, physicians. It was an amazing event. And um, it was one of the funnest things for me in terms of a conference. And now I'm thinking about my 25 years. So all these people were talking, all the name brand people, many of them hadn't known each other, hadn't met each other. They talked to each other by email. They knew each other's work, but they're meeting for the first time. Because I travel more than any of the other members, I knew more of them myself, but it was so exciting to see, like, see these friends of mine saying, oh, you didn't even meet? You've never met before? So um, I was asked to just review the GMO legal situation in the United States, and I told the organizer, no, I don't want to do that. What I want to do is go towards the end and summarize everything that everyone has said 
by tying them together. See, I had just done the book, well, some years ago, Genetic Roulette, which is behind my head. And I went through 65 different um, adverse effects of GMOs from various sources. And when I wrote the book, I wrote a, a, a chapter called Connecting the Dots, but I had nothing to include in there. It was, I knew where it was, I knew why it was important, but I went back and I looked after I wrote all the 65 risks with the help of 30 scientists, I looked for pattern, repeating patterns, everywhere it mentioned liver, everywhere it mentioned cancer, different things, tying them together. And so it was putting everything together in terms of what are the impacts of GMOs and Roundup based on the evidence that we have. So during the Beijing conference, I would, I, took everyone's PowerPoint and put it on my computer. And I was going through real time, taking their best slides and putting them aside, compiling, I compiled 99 slides of things that everyone had already seen, but I put them into an order so I could show, here's where there's a theory, for example, that genetic engineering will cause uh, cancer or that Roundup will cause a cancer. Here's evidence from animal feeding trials. Here's evidence from human epidemiological data. Here's evidence from Argentina where they sprayed glyphosate or Roundup from planes and the cancer rate went up 400%. So I went from laboratory studies of, you know, what's in it and theoretical to animal feeding studies to, and also clinical conditions. I also, there was also Michelle Perrow and other doctors describing what they saw in their clinics clinical practice, and there were veterinarians um, talking about what they were seeing in their livestock. So I had a chance to say, like, just took a look at cancer, looking at all together, it was devastating data that had been presented individually for three days, but I put it all together and then looked at another aspect and another aspect, another aspect. Somewhere I posted a, a I redid it for a human, a, 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 I redid it for those that hadn't been to China, and I think I posted it somewhere. If not, I'll have to remember to do that. Anyway, that was a good thing because <laughs> um, I, I was—I am skilled at putting together different patterns, um, and I had already done it with the book. Okay, so let's say uh, who's funding the COVID lettuce? I, you know, just take a look, Joyce. Um, just. Uh, search search engine it and you'll see I think it's um, USDA funds I think it's US UC or, or Riverside I'm going to step in and learn more about it I haven't reported on it yet um, Leanna organic is run by the USDA which is a bad move you know it there is conflict of interest between the USDA and humanity <laughs> in terms of some of the some of their um, pro chemical choices. It doesn't work so well for human health and the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of pressure. But the leaders of the organic certification program have told me that it was a good thing that it became a national certification uh, under the government. I don't have all the reasons why I have some, but it's not my expertise. Um, thank you, Linda, for your... Happy birthday wish, same as you, Brian. And Dan, if GMOs wipe out humans, will Gaia be able to survive? Uh, 
I'm not going to go there now. <laughs> um, yeah, Ryan, it is insane what we've talked about. Um, and the the water runoff and the spray diff, drift. Yeah, I mean, in terms of getting the, these, are from, I'm way behind here reading your, your comments. Um, how is the RNA in humans differ or similar to the RNA in vaccines? I, I, Joyce, you keep asking me about vaccines. I'm not going there. Uh, there's no advantage for me to step into that area, and I'm not an expert. Um, and people take one side or the other, and they lose half the world. And right now, we are needing to bring the whole world together to stop genetically engineered microbes and stopping gain of function of potentially pandemic pathogens. So whether or not we can conclusively decide that the laboratory in China was the source of the virus, it doesn't matter in terms of the need to implement bans on gain of function research. Take a look at the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle at Protect Nature Now. You'll see what I mean. They, they genetically engineer uh, an airborne version of a avian flu that can kill 52% of those that it infects. I mean, that would be devastating to the human population in a way that has never occurred. Spanish flu had, what is it, 100, oh, it's just huge numbers, 20 million people, and a laboratory recreated a version of the Spanish flu. Why would you do that? Well, they have reasons for it, but the reasons in my mind, and we've done a white paper on this and an article and whatnot, they, have, they just don't hold a candle to the risk of, of, of release. Um, so let's see. Let's go to some other questions here. Oh, Johanna from Zambia. I appreciate your 25 years of global work in the field of GMOs, production, sales, chemicals, etc. I was privileged to have personal contact with you many, many years ago in Zambia. I remember oh, my trip to South Africa. It, there was so such fun uh, impact there. Um, we had just my, I was told when in South Africa that my three-week visit put the GMO, non-GMO um, movement ahead by five to seven years. Uh, I got all this press coverage and access, and it was just, it was great. So as part of that, I went to Zambia and spoke at a conference. And this one was Organic Producers and Processors Association. I gave a presentation there. So uh, Johanna says that since then, she and her husband have been practicing ideas and have been getting the newsletter. If you guys haven't been getting the newsletter, please sign up for it. And she asks, have you ever felt in danger or suffered disadvantages or drawbacks in your life from, you know, big agribusiness? And I, um, I have actually haven't explored all of the ways in which they wrote about me. I, there was a, a document dump that a lot of information was forced into the public domain. And it's clear from the little that I've read, they, they not, they've been targeting me for years and targeting me with lots of money, 
trying to stop my progress in informing people about the dangers of the products that they sell and the corrupted science and approval process. So I've, I don't say certain things on FaceTime. I don't give them things that they can try and use against us. I don't give her plans in advance of, of the time that we want to uh, announce it. But they've been trying for years. They created an entire website trying to debunk um, the, the, the book, Genetic Roulette, that you can see over there. Over there. Um, and I had written the book, and in the book, I said, on my site, I will put these 65 health risks of GMOs, and each will have its own page, so you can submit anything that you think I got wrong in the book. And let's have a dialogue. Let's have a global debate. I will put it up, anything you send me. And I will also ask others to comment so we can get, engage in a debate. Nothing. They didn't put anything up. But three years after I wrote the book, they created their own website, misquoted and misrepresented the book in order to make their arguments, which in many cases were just the same arguments that I had actually debunked in the book using the support of 30 scientists and 1,123 endnotes. So they were absolutely just using the same arguments or picking up on something that I said and changing its meaning so that if people who didn't read my book would never know that they were being lied to. So Bruce Chassie was one of the authors of this site. He was one of the people paid to um, counter me. And in the lawsuit, um, of the third of the three roundup lawsuits, they used a memo in the cross-examination and then re-brought it up in the closing arguments. And it was about me. It was a Monsanto memo and, a, and an email from Bruce Chassie. And the subject line was whack-a-mole. And it was something like, Jeff is at it again. He wrote this article about how children are most at risk from GMOs and basically said, I'll go after him. And it was interesting that, well, the response by the executive from Monsanto was, funny you should use the word whack-a-mole. Donna and I, Donna Farmer, who I debated on the, on, the, on the doctor's TV show, we started using that term two years ago because they have a, a, a budgeted thing called let nothing go. Anytime someone comes up with some adverse findings or even comments in on social media, they have a huge budget to counter it. So they were attacking scientists and reporters and investigators and, and activists. And I was one of them and they called it whack-a-mole. Now in Brent Wisner, who's a friend of mine, was doing the closing arguments in the third trial and pointed out, he said, here was an article saying that children were most at risk from their product. And instead of doing an investigation to see if it were true, they used one of their secretly hired pseudoscientists to attack and try and discredit. Now, I went back and looked at that article that had been written in 2003, and it referenced the UK Royal Society, the Canadian Royal Society, the US Scientific scientific boards, 
regulatory agencies, UN, uh, UN documents, I believe. And it was very well organized, showing that children are at most at risk for potential allergens and toxins, et cetera. And that Brent was right, that there was a lot of evidence there that they just simply didn't want to look at. So sometimes they'll send, um, years ago, I taught swing dance so I could create a little swing dance community in my small Iowa town. My, my then wife and I taught swing dance and Lindy Hop and had a little Lindy Hop dance troupe. We love to dance and I actually, we actually taught it and made some money to support me while I wrote the book, Seeds of Deception. But it was very much of a sideline once or twice a week. And I asked, I took down the website before I started activism, but my, it didn't actually get taken down all the way. They do a whole private investigation evaluation of me and look at my background and and the only things that they could come up with in terms of trying to get, find skeletons in my closet was that I love to dance and I meditate and that I had taught this, this swing and Lindy. And so they tried to use that against me. They took a picture off the old site, send it around to members of, a, to politicians and try to show that I'm just a, a, a flake who likes to dance. Um, they'll, they wrote, you know, articles, dance teacher criticizes GMOs. <laughs> um, when they tried to bash uh, Dr. Oz, then I think it was Bruce Chassie got a line in that. He must have gotten paid extra for that. That said, he invited a ballroom dancer and, and meditating instructor, uh, Jeffrey Smith. So that shows that Dr. Oz made bad decisions. So the the, the, the logic is gone it's not there you know it's like with 1123 endnotes or 153 endnotes in the in the book they'll say oh it's not scientific there's no science in it they don't want people to read it they want people they want broad bus brushstroke to discredit and i go for two pages in the book genetic roulette saying this is these are their tactics these are the specific tactics what they do and they will do this to this book and to me and they did it was exactly as we predicted i've been writing on it for years I don't care. It doesn't affect me. It's not my job to worry about Monsanto, Monsanto now bear. It's not my job. It's my job to end their negative influence on the planet, there and others, um, in terms of GMOs and Roundup and that area. They may have some other areas that they work in that have negative influence, and that's not my job. So, Johanna, yes. It's been a game that's been, you know, we have to deal with trolls online. We have to deal with disinformation. And it's just because I've been reporting on how they attack anyone who has significant threats to their existence by showing the truth. If they hadn't attacked me, I'd be wondering, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> Why haven't they attacked me? They attacked all these people that I interviewed. Uh, there you go. Okay. Um, Dan asks about, uh, thank you for your comment. Oh, let me first check to see the people that are here. We'll go there first. Um, there's a lot of things you guys have written. Wow. 
There's too much. <laughs> All right, so I have to I have to start scrolling down here. Um, yeah, look at skeletons in my closet. Um, it's interesting. I mean, that's one reason why I don't really talk about my personal life much. I have this um, really great 40-day online program called A Magnificent New Normal. And I did it during the pandemic. And it was, I realized this is an interesting thing. If you have, if, you're not, if you don't know about this, um, I realized that the world was in a phase transition. And I'd heard about the phase transition from a chemist who talked about there's like a flat line, then a growth line, then a flat line. And a titration curve, you drop chemicals in and nothing happens over time. And then all of a sudden it starts to change and then it flattens out. The quality of the drops make no difference in the first phase and in the end phase. The quality of the drops are all important in the phase transition. While there's a change going on, the quality determines the height of that change. And so you pay a lot of attention to the quality. I see that working out as an activist and a leader where you work really hard to try and get someone to say, I'll make a change. And you just give them all this information and then they say, okay, I'll make a change. They do something to make a change and then that becomes their new normal, that becomes their default. The information that they get when they're determining what they wanna to do to change is all important. That quality has to be very high. So, and it's different than before. Convincing them to make a change is one set. How to make a change will determine how really healthy they'll be if it's changing their diet or whatever. So if you miss that window, you miss that window. So we were not strong enough to reach out to American education when it was looking at, oh, the school meals are terrible. And so we need to change it. And they created these wellness committees and determined what was considered to be uh, unhealthy. And then they created their new, their new diet. But I didn't get a chance to be in there. So I missed the window. So I'm very aware of the three stages in transformation. The comments I was getting from people two, two months or one month into the pandemic, I'd ask them, what's the best thing you're getting out of the pandemic? And what's the lessons or whatever? And they would tell me, when I, when I get my life back or when I'm, we're able to leave the house, I'm going to do things differently. They've learned to cherish something that they didn't have by being sheltering in place or blossoming in place, or they realized that they were missing something more than they thought and cherished what they were missing, but they were ready to make a change. So, and everyone I talked to had that. And I don't think that consciousness is linear or local. I think there's a kind of a collective consciousness organismic type of interaction that occurs from humanity standpoint. And I figured if the globe is in this situation, then we are as a globe in a phase transition where everyone's saying, okay, I want to change. So the information given at that point is critical. What do you do if you have been pulled out of the deep grooves of your life? What do you do to re 
make yourself? How do you step into the highest version of yourself? So I put together a 40-day and 40-night summit. One releasing one interview a day, Bruce Lipton, Lynn McTaggart, Lynn Twist, Brian, um, Nina Simons, David and, and Perlmutter and, and his son, um, Tom O'Brien, Zach Bush, uh, Deborah Poneman, um, Catherine Woodward Thomas, Alberto Violdo, Ilario McCulley, and you may have heard of some of these people. Uh, basically, the realm of different sectors of our life. We had someone talking about enlightened relationship with money, talking about how to make changes in your habits. Um, different things, basically saying, okay, we need high quality information from some of the world's greatest thinkers about how to step into the highest version of ourselves. And while we're at it, if consciousness is in fact non-local, non-local, and we may have a leap in consciousness to achieve something which humanity hasn't achieved before. So I asked everyone, first question, what is your vision of a post-pandemic civilization? Great, amazing answers. Second, how, do you, how can people step into the highest version of themselves? Then I would just go into these long interviews, sometimes an hour, hour and a half, because we weren't trying to pack them all in in a seven-day window. And, you know, I had to make a decision. I was starting to talk about how I'm attacked. Like, we'll be talking about areas that I don't normally talk about. Bruce Lipton on consciousness and consciousness at a field, Lynn McTaggart on the intention experiment, um, many uh, indigenous leaders talking about, uh, including Lynn, Lynn Twist about other indigenous leaders, talking about prophecies and what this time means from a prophetic standpoint. So in that sense, I started bringing more of who I am into the public sphere because there was a need. And that has become part of my new normal, my magnificent new normal is that I'm now giving more than just the facts, ma'am. I'm also sharing a little bit more about my, my beliefs and wisdom, my speaking from my own truth and wisdom, and, and uh, which comes also in part with age. And my birthday's coming up on Saturday. I'll be 63. Am I old? When I was 59, on the verge of being 59, my mom said to me, you're not old. Next year, you'll be old. <laughs> well, that was two, two and a half, three years ago. Um, I don't think my, I'm old, I don't feel old, and I'm not planning to retire. So that put that rumor to rest. No, there's no rumor there. I just made it up. All right, let's take a look at some of these comments. All right. Um, thank you, Brian, for your comment, my work. Simply outstanding. That's very nice. All right, here we go. Um, why won't you report more on the U.S. APHIS deregulating stack genes? I talked about that. That was the first thing I talked about, Josh. You may have missed it. Um, I actually consider the, the more dangerous thing right now, not stack genes, but genetically engineered microorganisms. And so we are, we've shifted a lot of our focus. Our main focus is now building a whole new movement. And one of the ways that we're building a new movement is asking other movements to add our demands to their campaigns. So regenerative agriculture farms the way 
nature farms, using the intelligence of the microbiome, using the intelligence of, of, of agricultural ecosystems, and it can draw down carbon. So it becomes, it's like the poster child for solving climate change because it can draw down literally 100% of all carbon emissions per year. And then if you also add reducing carbon emissions, you can reduce the amount of carbon that's currently in the atmosphere to pre-industrial levels. Now, all of that regenerative agriculture depends entirely on the microbiome, which is entirely at risk if you start releasing GMO microbes. So when I called my friend Andre Liu, who was the head of Regeneration International and sent him the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, he, um, he said that your, your demands are perfect for regenerative agriculture because they, um, it's what we need. Everyone, we absolutely need to preserve it in order to make sure that all of those benefits come. And so we want, um, we want the whole regenerative agriculture movement to adopt the, the plank we have to stop the release of GMO microbes. Now, there's a lot of members of Congress who are into regenerative agriculture. It's great. It's very popular. So I went to DC with two experts in regenerative agriculture, Tim LaSalle and Elaine Ingham, and they were very impressed. We brought the best in the world, and now they want to hear from them about the benefits of regenerative agriculture. But they're also going to hear from us that we're like an insurance policy. If you want that, you need this. If you want regenerative agriculture to work, you have to protect the microbiome. We can do the same with invasive species, with national defense and all these things. So we need to embed this demand for no microbiome uh, tampering and tinkering around the world to existing movements, as well as to the leaders in lawmaking positions who get it from their particular angle. So. Um, that also answers the question. Dan sent a question in about, gen about genetically engineering um, crops so that they increase their photosynthetic capacity, but that if you use proper foliar applications, which is biology, you can increase it to 40 to 50% from 15 to 20. And then the talks about sequestering carbon and all that. Yeah, I'm totally on it. We're totally on it. We're supporting that. And it's very important to us handling in bringing our needs of protect nature now into um, regenerative agriculture is absolutely essential. All right, let's see here. Um, let's see, we've got uh, Brian my, calling me my young friend. Okay. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for your happy birthday, and also Robin. Good to see you, Robin. This could be the Robin that works so well uh, promoting um, the Roundup uh, trials. Uh, thank you for access to all those wonderful um, attorneys who've become my friends. Claire. Ah, Claire from New Zealand. Still think of the cricket match, a real transformation event, Christmas cricket match. So, Claire, you know, one of the greatest things about my career, my job, is that I get to meet such great people around the world. And so um, I was 
going to Australia for a conference, um, Uplift, and my friend Bart Mitra set up this conference so that the speakers would arrive a week early and we would have our own workshopping. So I got real close to my already good friend, Bruce Lipton and his wife. And, and um, I mean, it was just some really, really great people were there. Uh, Vanda Shiva was there, um, Rachel Parent, uh, David Pramal and Mitten. It was just, it was beautiful, beautiful time together. And I was around Christmas and I decided to go to New Zealand and just hike and travel. And thank you, Claire, for organizing the most magnificent trip to South Island of New Zealand. And when she realized and I had my 50th birthday, so this was this this would be my 63rd birthday. I think it was my 50th, 13 years ago. It's good enough, it wasn't that long. Anyway, I had my birthday, maybe it was my 55th. Um, traveling on a boat to southern to the South Island. And then Claire said, what are you doing for Christmas? I said, I don't know, I have any plans. Well, come join us. So see, this is a family. We're part of this family. It's like, I've traveled, you know, originally it was couch to couch and then eventually bed to bed around the world so many times, 45 countries. And, and just, I'm, one of the things that's a problem is I can't keep up. I can't maintain correspondence with people I get very close with, you know, in three days, in a week, in two weeks, get very close, and then it's gone. All right, so thank you, Claire. Um, so Josh, you're talking about stacked, stacked traits. They've been really, I, I may not be aware of this particular deregulation, but they've been releasing stacked traits on crops for 15 to 20 years, 20 years. And I, I actually came out against it in books and lectures and stuff. It's old news. And going against it isn't going to give us a lot of leverage. I think the best leverage is where we're focusing right now. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to educate people about the fact that they put multiple genes in, a, in something and they have no idea um, what the interactions are. Okay. Sandra, our internals depend on microbiome that is healthy too. Exactly. So one of the groups that we are going to pull into this are the physicians, especially functional medicine and advanced practitioners that know about the microbiome and know that protecting it is essential for human health. All right. Um, let's see. <laughs> There's my allergies. All right, the change of genes in all animal, animals without record of modification to consumers. Yes, so Josh, once they start gene editing without regulation, you won't know whether the tomato's been genetically engineered or not. And then you may take that and then gene edit it. And then someone else may gene edit it and someone else may gene edit it. And the, so now you have stacked traits from gene editing and no one has a record of what's actually happened. All right, so Dan, you've been visiting with Andre at Acres USA. So, Andre got out of Australia. I wonder how you're going to get back in, Andre. All right, let's see. We're gonna we're gonna wrap up here. It's been an hour, and now I'm now I'm sniffling. Um, 
Sandra, they need to stop playing gods. I spent 45 minutes in a diner in Iowa with my friend trying to figure out a new way to characterize what GMO means. And I came up with God move over. So yeah, playing God. Um, Josh says that I agree with APHIS's deregulation of stacked genes. No, I'm totally against them. I don't know why you, this is, no one's talked to me about stacked genes in years. We've been against it for years. Maybe they just came out with a new uh, regulation that I'm not aware of. I'll look at it, Josh, okay? I'll look at it. Um, oh, it just happened. So the dereg, all right, so then I'll look at that. If they've just come up with stacked genes, then I haven't seen it yet. I, I read about four or five articles on GMOs a day. Um, I don't always read them all. I read the headline and know what it's about so that if I need to know, I have heard it once and I can find it. So I will look at that. Um, yeah, so Leanne, I said, my gene work has been going on since the early 90s. It started in 96, actually. Oh, you know, your gene or gene work in general. Yeah, GMOs started to be planning in 96. That's when I came in. Um, Vanda Nasheva was in there before then. Um, but, uh, and so was Ronnie Cummins and so was um, uh, Andy Kimbrell. So those are my, my colleagues that uh, have seniority over me. Although Andy says, since he hasn't done a lot of international travel, he says, everywhere I go, they say, oh yeah, you've been here. So I think I have a seniority around the world compared to him, but he's, he was in it before me. All right. Um, so I'm just seeing a lot of comments that, uh, let me see if there's anything else here. Um, Deborah asks, she wrote me, can I help, can I tell officials to work with nature instead of against nature? And what do officials say when I say that? So the most recent trip meeting with officials was in October in DC and we met with many um, staffs of members of Congress, both sides of the aisle, both houses, and they loved regenerative agriculture. They loved the idea of, of farming using with nature instead of against it. We didn't always use those terms, but they got the point. A lot of it depends on how you frame it. Um, you know, if you, if you work with nature, things are more efficient. They're less expensive. They produce more. So they may be more interested in the higher yields, increased profit, reduced needs for agricultural chemicals, drawing down carbon. And we say it's the microbes that do it. It's natural. It's the microbiome ecosystem in the soil that does it. And they get excited and they understand it. But they're already calculating the political nature of increasing farmer profit and, de and drawing down carbon, etc. So it has to be framed and messaged right. All right. 
I think we are done. So let me say this, some new, some, some asks. Um, I have two different newsletters. Um, I have the Institute newsletter. We as an Institute put that out every two weeks on Thursdays. And we inform people of other events coming up. And then at livehealthybewell.com, that's where I, some of the online programs that I've created um, are available. <coughs> the movie Secret Ingredients that I did with Amy Hart, the 90-Day Lifestyle Upgrade, <coughs> Healing from GMOs and Roundup, Magnificent New Normal. So we're now creating a, a Live Healthy Be Well Club starting early next year. Where I'm putting it all in one club, low cost each month, and giving some of these great talks, you know, out of the archives, <coughs> making things available at a library. So because I'm coughing, I'm going to stop now. The other thing is, please make a donation. It's the year end. It's time. We need it. I'd love to do this another 25 years, but I need your help. All right, everyone, before I cough anymore, safe eating. And yes, I'll happy birthday myself. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with. Or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.